0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the plus four podcast exploring the big wide world of Hickory golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers and visit us online at plus4.org. Ladies and gentlemen, before we get started in today's episode, I wanna thank the 1,000 listeners that have joined us since New Year's Day, 2021. I'm proud to say we have listeners in this order from the United States, the UK, Switzerland, Germany, Mexico, Sweden, Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, France, Puerto Rico, and Belgium. Thanks so much for tuning in and subscribing to the podcast. I hope you'll share the word with your friends and we'll grow this community as we complete the new year. Thanks again. So Tim, thanks for being here and thanks for joining us on the Plus Four podcast.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Before we get into a lot of the details of your Hickory Golf addiction, what's your backstory? How far back do you want to go? (laughs) Well, it'd be interesting to know where you were raised. Born in Pennsylvania, just north of uh, Mm
1: Wilkes-Barre. Moved to New Jersey at the age of three and uh, grew up in north central Jersey. Went back to Pennsylvania for college, University of Scranton. Graduated in 80 with a degree in accounting and minors in economics, philosophy, theology,
0: and English literature. And I take it you weren't in Joe Biden's class.
1: No, but my mom could have been friends with him. (laughs) She she grew up in that neck of the woods at that period of time. So I took a job in a public accounting firm, Cooper's and Library, Mm -hmm. which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. Served a few years there before I left and went into private industry at CR Bard. Left CR Bard to CIT Financial Services, which is part of Manufacturer's Hanover. And shortly after I passed the law and auditing parts of the CPA exam, in 1987, I bought a van, bought some tools, quit my job, and became a carpenter. Wow. And for the last whatever, 33 years I've been doing that.
0: And you were in the New York region basically this whole time?
1: Yes, yes. Everything. Mostly in north central Jersey. There's just a proliferation of work out here. So yeah. I just
0: my father's basement was a registered woodworking shop when I was a kid, and I suspect your carpentry skills didn't come from nowhere.
1: Well, my father's father was incredibly talented. I mean, he uh, there's a story of him. He had a one-car garage in the back of their house. He single-handedly jacked it up, built a second floor underneath, mm. and put it back on its, on the block's Um, using pneumatic jacks that he built. And he would take a drill press press apart and make a table saw out of it and then take that apart and make a router. (laughs) So uh, my dad fancied himself as a a carpenter, but it was basic, you know, homeowner stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. But so here you are deep in the corporate world. Where did that affection for woodworking come from? I really don't know. When I
1: was still at CIT... My brother, my younger brother was a plumber and it um, still is. And he had a friend of his who was a carpenter who uh, I went over and helped one day. We put, took out a French a window and put in a French door. And uh, he asked my brother if I wanted to work with him on weekends and nights. And it was like the fresh air fund. I couldn't wait for weekends to come to <laughs> go earn $8 an hour doing carpentry. Uh-huh. And I learned framing and trimming and things like that from him. But, uh, and then when I decided to give up the life of accounting and become a carpenter, it pretty much learn as you go. Yeah. And uh, there's certain elements that you gravitate towards like trimming and detail work. I love much more than carpentry.
0: Yeah. Well, it's no surprise to me because of the meticulous nature of accounting and all the financial work he did.
1: Yeah. I mean, the attention to detail to me, that's what people see. Mm -hmm. Nobody comes in and says, Boy, the cinder block must be so straight here. And the framing must be really done well for this fireplace to look the way it does.
0: So, Tim, you said you bought a van. Was that loaded with tools when you got it?
1: It was not. I bought a few rudimentary tools, but then as each job arrived, I would buy things that I would need for that specific job. And then I had Santa's little Christmas list of things that I really wanted. And um, with every paycheck, I'd go on and fill those orders.
0: And you basically hung out your shingle.
1: I hung out my shingle. The word got out. And for a month or two, I advertised, but I found that was fruitless. So it became word of mouth. And then Mm. one satisfied customer led to another. And uh, then you get to the point where you can turn down work and uh, increase your prices and people don't balk. And uh, it's been going on. For quite a period of time now. Yeah.
0: Wow, is there any connection to that and in your introduction to Hickory Golf?
1: Probably not. I mean, the Hickory Golf came about when I wrote a book, and then people said, "Oh, you play Hickory Golf?" And I said, "Of course I do." And I ran out and got myself some <laughs> really Hickory clubs and said, "I'm gonna learn how to play these things." So, um, so yeah. you
0: wrote you wrote the Claret Dreams before you were really passionate about Hickory Golf?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. I wrote a book and people said, oh, how much, how many rounds of hickory have you played? And I said, oh, it seems like I can't count them, you know? <laughs> so then I ran out to Ralph Livingston, bought myself a set of clubs and uh, came back and proceeded to just take them apart, took the grips off, took the heads off, saw how they were put together and then put them back together with new grips on them and, and scraped off the shellac and restained them. Holly them and polished the heads and did all that mm-hmm. stuff. And then can I
0: can I presume those were Stewarts? your first club? They
1: were stewards. Yeah. yeah. And it was interesting because in the very beginning I wanted some hickories, but I didn't want to risk going on eBay and getting an A4 swing weighted <laughs> right. mash nib like. And, and say, is this what Hickory's all about? So um, I talked to Mike Policano and he said, if you want to get good clubs, go to see
0: Ralph Livingston, hmm. so. And did you literally yeah. go to see Ralph? Was he in Michigan then?
1: Yes. And, and, uh, and you
0: did that, you actually went to see him in person.
1: I went out to see him, walked in, was ushered down by him to his basement and saw Harry Varden, Ted Ray, Francis Wemette's clubs from the greatest game ever played. the the clubs from the legend of bagger Vance. he had a an umbrella stand with putters on it and i said oh maybe i can grab a putter while i'm here and he said um each one of those putters is probably four figures (laughs) But, (laughs) but when i went out to see him i made him a little six inch long nose play club and I uh, presented it to him, and he said, Oh, this is just like my real Tom Morris Long Nose Play Club that was hanging on the wall. Right. And he was ex- as excited about that little club <laughs> I made him as I was about the big club. Yeah,
0: had. yeah.
1: And uh, we exchanged books and um, came back home and started uh, playing hickories. So your book came
0: out in 2010. This is around that time? Right around that time, yeah. Right. Uh, wow. Probably that that fall. Uh-huh. So. And we'll talk much more about your book. I, can't, I look forward to talking about that, but we're going to save that for the end because I think that'll make a nice ending. Tell us what's in your play set these days.
1: I have a George Duncan Brassy. I have a uh, George Duncan Backup Brassy that just goes along for the ride. It hasn't been, it's probably mm-hmm. been played two or three times. I have uh, Stuart Midiron, Mashy, Mashy Niblick, Spade, Mashy, I have a Burke Mashie that is my favorite go-to club mm-hmm. and, and it's indestructible, knock on wood. And I have a Brown Varden putter. I have several Brown Varden putters that just keep going in and out, depending on whether I make a putt or not. And um, I have a Hendry and Bishop Maxwell flanged uh, nibblet.
0: So all authentics? All authentics, yes. And uh, do you have a preferred golf ball that you use? I've always
1: played the zip or the uh, 50. We had the classic made, Brian Schumann. Right. And had some, made the classic, which I still have a few of. They're like hen's teeth now. So um, when you lose one of those, you cry a lot more than you used to. But I've recently tried the, the Wilson Duo.
0: Yeah, I like that it's ball.
1: Refreshing. It's nice and soft. I like the feel of it.
0: Yeah. I had
1: gone through, I, in my basement, I had golf balls. Over the years, and it had several boxes of uh, 90 compression bolitas, and they went out around before you lost them. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, they didn't last very long.
0: I, I I don't think they make the Wilson 50 anymore, do they? No, you can still find it
1: on like at Walmart if you wander in there. Some of the times they'll mm-hmm. have a, a two pack for 19 bucks, which is, you know, you don't mind losing those, right?
0: No, I, I've played that ball. I like that ball. And I like the Wilson duo spin. I used to play that ball with hickories in my uh, pre-1900 clubs, if not the mesh ball or, you know, the classic.
1: Yeah, I played a number of the mesh balls. In fact, they're great to have in your bag because when you go play hickories, and somebody goes, what well, golf ball do you play? You always yeah. pull the mesh ball or the bramble ball out. Right. Just, they're blown away. And right. you put it in your pocket and take your Wilson.
0: <laughs> exactly. So uh, Tim, those of us that know you, and there are many of us always admire your attire. Uh, how do you go about managing that side of Hickory golf?
1: Well, I've, I recently purchased, maybe several years ago, a set of T-Berry plus fours. And um, I have some Tony Vecchi plus fours. Yeah. fours. Um, I've worn long linen pants um, and a shirt and tie a flat cap but I've always found that um, shoes are also important because you see all, all too often pictures of Hickory events and the guy will have plus fours on high white socks and sneakers or the right. Adidas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Adidas exactly. And um, so Alan Edmonds came out with a line of golf shoes a few years ago. And then I stumbled upon a site that they had called shoe barn which is their discontinued or blemished shoes. And for another $30, you can get any of those pair of shoes and have them put golf soles on. So I found a pair of uh, dark brown and white spectator shoes mm. and had some soles put on those with spikes. And I think they've since discontinued that mm. practice, but I haven't called called them to, con- to see if it's true. So.
0: One thing I've liked about Allen Edmonds is they make narrow sizes. And for me, that's helpful. And wide ones as well. So for me- Oh, oh, okay, good. I've worn the Fort Worth model, which is a shoe I really like, except that it really comes to a point at the toe. And it's really not very comfortable after a whole round.
1: Yeah, I found out why I went out to Bandon and I brought two pair of Allen Edmonds and um, I played 10 rounds in four days. And I found that uh, a comfortable shoe is probably a better decision to make when you go right. out. There. Um,
0: the other Edmonds pair that I have is the mesh pair. Have you seen those? Mm-hmm. The, yeah. uh, the, the body of the shoe is mesh. Yes. Those are incredibly comfortable in a nice warm summer day.
1: Yes, they come in brown and black. I've seen yeah. them. And uh, it's, it's I think attire is so important because you go to someone like our, one of our events, guy came up and he's in a pair of like maroon gym teacher type of shorts you know the kind and he said when are we teeing off I said well not for another 10 or so minutes but you have a chance to get changed and he goes changed and and he was a friend of one of our members uh-huh. and uh he got the memo a little too late or he didn't he disregarded the memo and he thought it was a suggestion. So. Uh, the very next event he showed up with plus fours a certain
0: time. I remember I'll keep this person nameless but a person showed up at one of our events in Oregon barefoot and played the whole round barefoot and some some people took offense to that.
1: Well Sam Sneed did that as a child.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah exactly. (laughs) Uh, So in in all of your collecting do you have a favorite item among everything that you have there at your house?
1: Mm, I have Stumbled upon a, a, a number of cool clubs. I have a, a, a Freddie Tate putter. Um, I have a Otto Hackbarth, Tom Stewart midiron.
0: Mm, really? Yeah.
1: It says Otto Hackbarth golf expert. And it, <laughs> underneath is the, the pipe clique. And uh-huh. uh, um, I have the putter head that I talked to you about that I got from Archie Baird on my visit to Gullin. And um, that his, he said his wife discovered in her great-great-grandfather's shop after he passed away, who was Willie Park Sr. And uh, I came home and I had a bamboo and purple heart shaft. And I took the two and put them together. And it was like Cinderella's foot in the glass slipper. That was a perfect fit. And I put whittled down an eighth inch purple heart pin and put it through the club mm. so I wouldn't damage the brass, the gun mount.
0: Well, let's, let's, let's take a short side trip here and talk about Archie Baird and your opportunity to meet him. That's somebody I never got to meet, but of course, I have followed him online for years.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I when I knew I was going to Gullen, I knew I wanted to meet him. So I went into the pro shop and I went in and I said to this gentleman at the counter, are you the head pro? And he says, I am. I'm Alistair Good, I believe his name was. And I said, I want to give you something. I gave him one of my divot tools. And he goes, are you Tim Alpaw? <laughs> and I looked around like I had a name tag on or something. I said, yes, I am. He said, I have one of yours from the World Decree Open that um, Lionel Friedman gave me. And I said, well, now you have two of them. So uh, I said, is there a chance I might get to meet Archie Baird while I'm here? So he picked up the phone, he called him right at his house. And he said, Archie, we have a gentleman here who wants to see your museum tomorrow. Would it be possible? And he says, sure, I'll be there at 10 o'clock. I showed up, Archie showed up. We talked at length about everything in his museum. It was just like a kid in a candy store kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And we exchanged books. And uh, I was admiring the gunmetal heads that he had on this center table. And he said, is there anyone you fancy more than another? And I picked up the one that he gave me, and he said, "Take this home with you." And I was, "Are you really?" And, "Yeah, sure." And so uh, he told me that you know his wife Sheila had her great great grandfather had it in his shop when he passed away, and so it was just you know magical. So,
0: and Archie was probably in decent health then when you met him.
1: He was ninety one or two at the time. Mm-hmm. I guess he lived a few more years. And um, his memory wasn't clicking on all four cylinders, mm-hmm. but, um, but when he was on, he was very crisp.
0: Well, Tim, those that know your name already before listening to the podcast will probably know your divot tools. Could you talk us through how you got started with those and where they've taken you in the last 10 or 15 years? In
1: 1995, I played a local golf course and they handed out these plastic two-pronged divot tools asking you to fix your ball mark and one other ball mark and uh so I did that and then I came home and I was doing a project that required purple heart which is extremely hard um, purple wood plum colored and so I said maybe I'll try and make a tool out of that and I did and they burned through bits and I burned through scroll saws blades because it was very hard And um, I went and brought it with me to play golf. Somebody saw it and said, hey, can you get me one of those? So I made a couple and I gave them out to my friends and then it just blossomed from there. And in 1996, I had given one. I worked with ESPN as a spotter when the senior tour came to a local golf course. And I presented one to Arnold Palmer. And after the round, I said, would you be interested in having these for the President's Cup, which Mm. he was captaining? And he said, of course, that'd be great. He goes, I'll get in touch with you and let you know my players' choices. And I made them for the players, went down as, as his guest. And uh, while I was there, I gave one to Tom Kite, who was captaining the Valderrama Ryder Cup team, and asked him if he would be interested, and, and went on and on from there. Wow. I've done it for the President's Cup and Ryder Cups for the last, I guess, uh, eight or nine years straight. And it's just, it's a sense of pride to be able to put them in the hands of the players. Oh, yeah. And
0: And have they evolved from two prongs to one prong?
1: Yes, I went out to Beth Page, and uh, I saw Billy Andre, one of the tee boxes, and I went up and I gave him one of my divot tools. And he said, do you have any with a handle and a place to put your foot? Because these greens are so (laughs) And I said, no, but, and then I had offered one to uh, Tom Watson at one of the senior events. And he said, oh, I don't use a tool. I use a tea. So I followed him that day and oh, see. To, he took a, a, just a T out and used it like a sewing needle. And so I was making a two-pronged one and one of the prongs broke off. And I sat there, looked at this one-pronged divot tool with a handle on it. And I thought, you know. If it's good enough for Tom Watson, it's good enough for everybody. So it morphed in shape and functionality Mm -hmm. and that's all I make now pretty much.
0: Now, I also know you fancy yourself to make uh, Hickory Tees. I I, have one of these and I've played it for over 10 years now. I've never lost it. It's never broken. Can you tell us about making those?
1: Well, people from all over the United States send me golf clubs to restore. And off, all too often they send me a club with a broken shaft and say, can you put a new shaft on it? So I have all the shafts that I've taken off and i put them in a pile in a box. And I thought, I don't want to burn them. I don't want to, there's gotta be some function for them. You use it at the ends of them if you want to lengthen a club. And then one day I'm just staring at one of them. And I said, you know, that the flare of that hosel insert is perfect for a tea. And it's almost somebody reminded me like a trumpet um, piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Wynton Marsalis's trumpet piece. So I took it out and I drilled a, put a, a half inch bit on my drill press and put a dimple in the top and then shaped the bottom to keep that point to it. And uh, it actually had a hole in it for the pin. So I threaded some wax linen through there and put a, like a fob on the end. So the right. wouldn't get lost.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And went out and tried it. And after a few hits, it wasn't dented. It's just, it's so hard, you know, right? Yeah. And, uh, so I ended up making a few hundred of them from little cutoffs from all the different shafts I had. And um, people would call and say, Hey, can I get a bag of those? And I'm like, well, they're five bucks a piece. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're time consuming. They used to be a machine. In fact, at, um, when I was at St. Andrews, I went out to the St. Andrews golf club company. And Hamish Stedman was the mm-hmm. was running it at the time. And he, they had a machine there. And they would put all the scraps of wood in there. And it would make tees from the little oh, pieces. Really? Of uh-huh. Take them, cut them, shape them, and it would just spit them out like a gumball machine. But I didn't have that fortune to make, to get one of those. So mm-hmm. I make them each one at a time.
0: Right. <laughs> uh, virtually indestructible. Yeah, I can attest to that. I, mine sits in my ditty bag, and uh, you know I love it on par threes. It's not long enough for my brassy, but I use it when I need a short tee.
1: Well, I'll be sure to send you a bunch. <laughs> <Of> various <laughs> lengths now.
0: So uh, now, Tim, I think you've had your woodworking creations in pro shops around the country, haven't you? I have.
1: I first started out when I started making the two prong. I'd go from country club to country club during the winter time and say, "Are you interested in carrying this?" and and all too often they're like, "Mm, no, that's okay. Have a nice day. Or they look at it and they go, it's gonna break. And, um, or where'd you come up with this idea? Or what do you think it's gonna sell? And I'd say, well, you know, I made them for the president's cup team and Arnold Palmer. And then 45 minutes later, you're still talking about Arnold Palmer. Uh (laughs) You walk out with an order for the tools. (laughs) So um, they've been in a number of different pro shops. i have given them to probably 85 or 90, tour pros and anytime i've actually presented one to them i've had them sign a blank one and Mm. so i have a fair collection of divot tools It's pretty neat Um, one in particular is signed on the front by arnie palmer and on the back by winnie palmer Mm. Nice. i dare say it's probably the only
0: one in existence yeah that's nice so i understand you're featured in the current issue of golf digest congratulations
1: thank you Thank you. Uh, yeah. how,
0: does, how does that kind of coverage come about?
1: I picked up my phone one day and there was an email from uh, Brittany Romano, who was the assistant editor of the Style page. And she said, we're interested in putting your tool in our January issue. And I said, fine, that'd be great. And uh, she said, can you send us a few pictures of tools you'd be interested in having them in? And I sent her one with uh, in an ebony shaft with a bloodwood and um, basswood Marketry pattern on it.
0: And there were five of them in the grouping.
1: Send it to her and she said, fine, it'll be in the January issue. Wow. As simple as that.
0: But you didn't know her and this just came out I of the blue. Know
1: her and all of a sudden I got an email.
0: And so what's going to happen now? Will this have a transformational effect on your market? I don't know. I,
1: I've gotten probably a couple of dozen requests in the last 10 days. Since Did they the-
0: include your contact information in the article?
1: They did not Mm. so people actually looked up the word claret dreamer Mm -hmm. oh um, good and went to instagram and on instagram there's a link to my uh gmail account right and and when i there's a guy named marty i'm not sure he's a style editor yeah yeah sure and he came to me after the pga show he saw it in one of the the holderness and born booth and he said i'm interested in doing an article about these um, do you have a website? And I said, I don't. And he said, well, I can't necessarily mm. publish your your uh, Gmail account right. in our magazine or you'll get flooded. So he said, uh, it's a deal breaker. So I said, okay. And it's one of those things. If I sell one more Divitool tool in my life or a million more, it doesn't really matter.
0: Sure, to. sure, sure. So you mentioned your Instagram account. I know I follow you on Instagram. You've got a very creative feed on Instagram. Let's talk about some of the other innovative and creative things that you do, Tim. I, I knew you first most often from the unbelievable whipping that I saw you producing, unlike anything I've seen anywhere. Yeah, I um,
1: when I brought back the clubs from Ralph and I started to buy clubs um, and took the grips off they were all too often on the outside, they were blackened. And it was mostly from pitch or pine tar that people would put on their hands for gripping.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you'd undo them and the grips would be red and purple and green. And I'm sure in the world of black and white photography from the thirties and before that, they didn't, people didn't know that the grips actually had colors to them. And Ralph told me that the Scots were very, they didn't want to spend money on colorful things. So they would put white whipping or, uh, and then put black pitch on top of it to black mm-hmm. the, the uh, whipping. But um, I often thought if they had colored whipping, they would have used it. And, uh, and also the very fact that the Scots and their Argyles and their wools and everything, the patterns. So I was whipping a club one day and I, and they usually like an inch Or so inch and a half of black whipping on the bottom Mm -hmm. and i so i extended that to like three inches and then i started at the top with uh, a different color did three laps around that and then just spiraled it down did six laps on the bottom and spiraled it back and tucked it in and the crisscrossed just down the front and down the back yeah
0: wait wait i i I really want to understand this because i've always wondered how on earth you integrate two different colors are you saying that at the bottom, you end the first color at the bottom or you yeah. do the top and bottom in one color and then do the top and bottom in a second I color? I do
1: this the sub color, the, orig- the, the lowest color on the thing. Let's right. say I do navy blue from the top of, of the joint of a brassy down to the flare of the, of the hosel. Mm-hmm. And then I go back with a red or a maroon and start at the top of that. And I do three laps, and then I start down the original navy blue.
0: I see. Spiraling
1: it and and getting to the bottom. I go around the bottom six times, and then I turn around, and it ends up crossing what came down right. in the opposite direction. And when I get to the top, I add three more laps, so I have I six
0: see. strands on I the top, see. six on the bottom. And the... Second color is above and below the base color, not over top of it.
1: Right. The, right.
0: Six, the six wraps.
1: The six wraps are below
0: and above. Yes, okay, ah, I've always wondered how you did that.
1: And now, and I've also done ones where I've done three colors. And what you do there is you, you bring it around and you bring it in between all the crisscrossing of the original, of the first color you put on. Mm-hmm and return it back. So you have a, a double diamond, so to speak. I
0: and would love a picture of some of this too, if you could send me a picture or two. It would be incredible to post that on the show notes. Has anybody um, that you're aware of tried to do that other than you? No. And in fact, I, I went to uh, Marriott Seaview Golf
1: Course. We had the US Hickory open down there years ago. And I went in and You had to present your clubs and they had to be approved Mm -hmm. for playing. And I pulled out my brassie and it was whipped like that. And I'm not, Paul Dietz maybe was the guy at the table. And he turned and he said to this other guy, come here, look at this. And he looked at me, he goes, we're going to have to steal this. (laughs) It's the most sincere form of flattery. Yeah.
0: Well, so you're very innovative, Tim, and uh, I know you got involved before anybody else in the market in trestle sticks, and that has now grown into a new variation, but can you talk us through a little bit of that?
1: Yeah, I was, I was at an event, or I'm not sure where I saw it, but somebody had two hickory shafts put together with a rudimentary screw and a fly, fly uh, nut on the end of it, and with a piece of string between the bottoms, holding it together so it wouldn't overspread. And I saw that and I said, oh, this is really pretty cool. I I can make something like that. And I, so I had hickory and I had oak and I had all kinds of woods in my shop. So I started to make some and uh, I've since shared them with a couple people who then copied them. And uh, so one day, maybe two years ago, a year ago, I decided I'm just pondering the the notion of how can I make a different kind of trestle stick that when I see, when people see it, they don't automatically assume. So I came up with a trestle sling. So instead of the leather being across the bottom, it's across the top. It keeps the sticks from spreading too far and it acts as a cradle for either the club shafts or the bag as you put it down. And it's become quite popular.
0: And so far that's not been stolen or copied so far. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, honestly, Tim, I see so many of your original ideas copycatted out in the world. Yeah. I mean,
1: there's nothing, I mean, I didn't, I didn't invent the divot tool. Right. I, I kind of invented the use of woods and layering and designing them and coming up with interesting patterns and stuff. But,
0: um, well, Tim, you gave me something once, which was a thick handled single, tined divot tool with suede on it and some whipping. What do you call those?
1: It looks like this. Yes. It's just, it's a hickory shaft tool. Oh, okay. It's a hickory shaft and you orient it so that you are sanding the taper in the direction of the the grain. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't break the first time you poke it in the ground and turn Mm -hmm. it. But I've done them where I've replaced
0: them with tweed and leather. Do you, but you don't have a unique name for those. I do not. I, I know you, I saw some baseball yeah. stitching. There you go. Yeah.
1: It's a baseball one. And um, I made, actually, I, I took some golf balls <laughs> and I stripped the covers off of them and stitched um, covers on them. Now, and do you
0: use a curved needle for that?
1: No, I actually use two needles uh-huh. uh, add about four feet of wax linen. Right. And you start opposite holes and you right. just crisscross it.
0: Yeah, I stitch my own Boosie style grips on my club, so I am familiar with that technique. And it
1: is a labor of patience.
0: Yeah, so hey, there's a huge advantage, I think, to your trestle sling idea. One of the frustrations probably a lot of us have is that when we, if our sticks are in the bag and we stick a club in the bag.
1: Yes, it gets tangled.
0: Yeah, five times out of 10, the handle of the club goes through the leather down in your bag so if you have it on the sling you can avoid if that
1: you put, you put it in you straddle a head in a shaft and then you take out a club and you, <laughs> you right. them flying out. right yeah and it's it's worked like a charm because the leather's up on top of the bag right and you, and you can just pull the leather
0: so tim you're the first guest on this podcast who represents a major metropolitan hickory regional group the metropolitan hickory society Yes. Could, could you tell us about your group and uh, what the dynamic is within the membership?
1: This is our eleventh year. Brian Schumann, Mike Policano, and myself, mm-hmm. um, with great guidance from Brian. Brian is a go-to guy. He's uh, he puts things together. Yes. He's. Um, and he's so, a
0: professional event organizer. He is. Yeah. And
1: he uh, he was. He's a he's a scratch steel player. And he, he had won the Long Island uh, Senior Open. Mm. And he uh, was getting probably a little bored with golfing because he, he came upon the Mid-Pines Hickory Classic. And he went down and played it. Mm. And he was just smitten. And they gave him a set of rental clubs. And he just, I mean, the first pure mashie he hit, he was in love. And uh, he came back and he wanted to put together an event in Long Island. And I saw it on the Society of Hickory Golf website. And I reached out and called him. And he said, um, how did you find out about me? I said, from Society of Hickory Golf. And he goes, are you a member of that? And I said, um, well, I said, I wrote this book called Clara Dreams. And he said, uh, I have that book. And I said, oh, you're the guy who bought it. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he started laughing and we went out, I went out and played in it. And uh, he thought he'd probably get 40 or 50 people to come. And I think there were a half dozen, but mm-hmm. it, it was the seed to the apple tree. Yeah. After that, um, we put together maybe half a dozen events every year at at storied courses like Ridgewood Mm -hmm. and um, Hackensack and Yale and Somerset Hills. And um, God, Yale must be
0: a trip on hickories.
1: Yale is uh, quite the challenge, and what we've always found that we 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 find the appropriate tee box to play from. Sure, yeah. And once once you get to that tee box, and for sometimes for some players it's just one too far up and some it's just not far up enough. So, uh,
0: but oh, uh, I remember the years when I was in Kentucky, I used to get to play with Brian fairly regularly. And, uh, it seemed to me he was always changing putters.
1: He's had uh, a Brown Varden putter in his bag for Mm -hmm. four or five years now. Okay. He was using a
0: Schenectady when I last played with him, I think. This one's got a swing weight
1: about E6. uh And, uh, yeah, he's, He's played with that for a few years now
0: uh, some of those braun vardens have an oval shaft don't they
1: they at the top of the hosel the shaft is oval right are, so. right
0: right right uh brian has another advantage he's what six three or six four
1: yeah he's got some some altitude to him
0: yeah so um, tim uh, you and i were fortunate to play down in miami another yeah. event that brian organized it was sort of an invitational, if I remember right. And I got to play with you on one of those days. That was so much fun because we used a different ball every day. We used the bramble ball, the mesh ball, the classic. Yeah, It was different balls every day, and it was really enjoyable.
1: Yeah. And then we went to the racetrack to watch
0: right. our,
1: our horse come in. Whatever. Right. I think we may have won, right? And some of us were there in our plus fours, and we garnished some looks from the on the yeah.
0: And uh, we also had the chance, you and I, to play at World Hickory Match play at the Cricket Club, again organized by Brian Schumann. That went on for several years, and what are your recollections of that tournament?
1: It was great because it was the site of the 1907 and 1911 U.S. Opens, and uh, so it had some history to it. It was a nine-hole course that, because of its length, was probably not as the most used course Mm -hmm. of the three at Philly Cricket. And um, but again, Brian put together an event with medals and trophies and prizes and an auction. And um, it, it went over two days and we had a dinner the one mm-hmm. night. Everybody came uh, well attired and um,
0: and a good international our, contingent.
1: Yeah. And there were there were people from Switzerland and England and um, Lionel Friedman came over. It was the yeah. honor starter. So it, he put on a, a great show and it was, it was a lot of fun. And then something happened within the club where whether it was a change in management or a change in opinions, but we, we never ended up going back mm-hmm. there after that.
0: One of the lasting memories I have of the St. Martin's course at the cricket club is the single cut from the fairway to the rough and from the green to the rough, basically. There was no fringe. Right. There was a single cut. And I really love that element of that course.
1: Yeah, it's um, in fact at Paramount Golf Club, which was designed by uh, Tillinghast up in Havistraw, New York. Mm -hmm. uh, They brought in the superintendent and the pro had mentioned about expanding the green surfaces. And he made the cut right to the edge of the rough and Mm -hmm. didn't put that intermediary cut in there. And um, at first, it was like, oh, what a mistake I made. But then it was very cool because a lot of times that collar lets you putt from, but you roll up against the rough. Exactly. And that means we're running 12, 13 at the time. And you, you're up against the rough. You can't really bring a putter in there. So right. it made for a more interesting round of golf.
0: And the World Hickory match play for listeners' benefit was nine-hole matches. We played all nine holes, no matter... If it seemed like the match was closed out on the eighth hole, yeah. you played all nine holes and it was stymie rule, which was a lot of fun.
1: Which was a lot of fun. We went out and forced foursomes, so you couldn't stymie your right. non-opponent. Exactly. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun and you played all nine holes and you got points for every hole you won. And then the total points went put you in a playoff. And in fact, the first year, I think the finals was decided on a stymie chip. Mm-hmm. I remember it. yeah.
0: I don't have many claims to fame in the Hickory World, Tim, but I did win one of my matches nine and oh. There you go. And I think I was the only one over the first two years that had that pleasure. But it was just dumb luck.
1: And the people you meet in the world of Hickory Golf is just i think that's that's the essence of the game
0: yeah for sure now tim you've traveled pretty widely can you just recollect some of your favorite trips where you've taken your hickory clubs I've been to
1: scotland twice and i've only played hickory in scotland i've never mm-hmm. played steel mm-hmm. and uh, my first trip i stationed myself in saint andrews and played um seven rounds of golf the old course the new course the eden crail ely Ken Garrick and just had the blast. And then I went back, my daughter was getting a master's degree in at the London School of Economics. So I went over and visited her in London for three days Then we took the train up to Edinburgh and rented a car and played Gullen, Muirfield, North Berwick, Cruden Bay, Dornick, Brora, Ken Garrick and the old course, eight rounds in eight days and um, all hickories. And um, you show up at the first tee of the old course with hickories and you get some real street cred from the
0: start. <laughs> now, did you do most of those courses as a walk-on single?
1: Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. I, yeah made, that's interesting. I made tee times in advance. And then sometimes I would just get there and, sure. and call. And at the old course, you know, I just got in the in the queue in the morning. And I played it three times. And I was fortunate enough to get the seven Seven ten and seven twenty 20 times. So, I mean, you can get there at, at four in the morning and not get out till two o'clock in the afternoon. Right. I had some good luck. Yeah.
0: Good. Uh, you mentioned Archie and Lionel. Are there any other, uh, I know you have a lot of stories of relationships that you've created because of your book and your love of Hickory golf.
1: Well, one that I've told, and, and, and you've heard this before is in my first trip, to Scotland. I was playing the old course I had my hickories. I got to the third hole. I sent my bag down and went out to putt. And when I came back, one of the marshals was looking through my bag. And I, I walked over and said, can I help you? And he said, my great-great-grandfather was James Spence. He was a club maker here in St. I said, I know who he was. And uh, he's, I said, he was uh, partners with James Gourlay and they had a clique mark of a shamrock with an S and ampersand and a J. And then after World War I, they broke up and uh, he changed his cleat mark and then sold his business to Robert Forgan who kept his cleat mark. And he just stood there slack short <laughs> and he said, he said laddie, the only thing better than a hickory player is an educated hickory player. And uh, we walked four, five and six. And he said, I've got to get back to my post." And I said, I, I'm sure I have one of your great-great-grandfather's clubs. Next time I'm in Scotland, I'll bring it. And it's almost that, you know, sure you will kind of thing. So when my daughter was getting her master's degree, I was sure to put that mashie in my bag. And uh, that was my final round of the week. I finished up, I went into the visitor center and I said, do you have a gentleman here related to James Spence? And they said, ah, Alec Spence. And I said, is he working today? And They, they got on the walkie talkie and they said, Alec, there's a man from America here to see you. And he came into the visitor center with this sheepish look, like he had hit my car in the parking lot. And I said, I have, I said, two years ago, you told me your great-great-grandfather was James Spence. And he said, I, and I said, I wanted to give you this. And I pulled the club out and you turn it over in the bottom, it says James Spence, St. Andrews. And he's crying, I'm crying, people there are clapping. And uh, I said, can I get a picture of you with the club? So we went out to the first tee And there were four players, three caddies and a starter. And he said, JJ, can we have the tee box? And uh, he said, sure, gentlemen, please exit the tee box. And they're looking at us like we were going to cut in front of them. (laughs) Yeah. He turned with his back to the old club, the old course clubhouse and held his club across his chest. And I took a picture of him. Yeah. Beautiful. And it was, it was um, the perfect ending to a really good week of perfect weather. And um, I was t- reminded that it was the karma of that kindness that gave me six days in London
0: and eight days in Scotland without a drop of rain. Wow. You know, it's, it's not infrequent that I meet people in this line of hobby that do what you do. They share clubs because they know it will be meaningful to somebody. Yeah, uh, it's, ha- it's happened to me. And I try to think about it and do it for other people. Yeah, but it's just part of this group, isn't it?
1: Well, when I play in a in a golf event at the Metropolitan Hickory site, in might and I see a little kid after our round. I always go over and give him a square mesh golf ball. Mm-hmm. And I think the father wants the ball more than the kid has. <laughs> yeah. But it's always something like they, they'd see you walking up in this silly garb and you give them this golf ball and they're like, you're a giant in their world. Right. And I have clubs from local country clubs. Like I played Aquatic and I went up there and gave the pro a club that said Christy Aquatic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was just, he goes, I'll, I'll give this to the archivist. And like last, I think was your last episode, you had John Capers on. Yes. And um, I brought him a club that said Marion, uh, Ardmore PA, and showed it to him. And he's like, oh, this is clever. And he went to give it back to me. I said, no, that's for, for you. And uh, so it's in the
0: archives now. Yeah. I've sent a club to Canada. It, it's one of the few clubs that I eagled with in Hickories. Wow. Uh, but it had this course name on it. And I looked up the course and it was in Canada. I reached out, talked to the secretary and I sent them the club because uh, I was moving on. I wanted to get a match set of clubs. This is back when I was playing all mongrel clubs but we all do this. It's just part of the nature of the sport. Yeah, I think.
1: And, and it's the, that club that I gave to James Spence's great, great grandson meant so much more to him than yeah. it would leaning against the wall of my office if yeah. I never played it again. uh,
0: now i think you've had the benefit of having some meals and some clubhouses do you have any opinion of clubhouses both from a carpentry standpoint and separately from a golfing standpoint that you have loved i would
1: say there's one club that hits both of those Mm -hmm. and it's uh shinnecock uh-huh and, um, mckin meet and white design or stanford white it's so storied i got invited out there we played shinnecock in the morning had lunch upstairs in the clubhouse played national in the afternoon wow two really great golf courses bordering each other um a lot of history muirfield the honorable company of edinburgh golfers i was invited there and you went in and you sat with you played and there's a morning round where you play your own ball and then you go in and you change and you sit down to this sumptuous lunch that's an hour and a half to two hours Mm -hmm. and um, it's at a table for maybe 30 men and it's buffet style and it's the chatter and the conversation and the meeting of people um, members and non-members and then you go back out and you play foursomes Mm -hmm. and just to walk around that clubhouse to know the history of it to see the, the oil paintings they had two shadow boxes of silver balls hung from golf clubs Mm -hmm. and they were the captain's balls from every year when the captain is is played in. So I made a note to the, or I mentioned to the gentleman who had invited me, um, I said, oh, this first shadow box is the first 50 or 60 years of the club. And the second one is the second. And he said, why would you say that? And I said, well, the first well, the first two rows of balls are featheries. And then you went to Guttie's here. And then you went to a Bramble ball. Then you went to a, and he's, he called one of the other members and he'd been a member since 1958. He said, I'd never noticed that before. So I don't know if you have a heightened sense of awareness when it's someone else's domain that you're yeah. in and you take it for granted when it's just, you know, walk yeah. down the street and go play.
0: Yeah, so. pretty neat. Now, uh, if I understand right, you and Rich Schmidt from the Carolina Hickory Association got to play Marion with hickories.
1: We did. Uh, John Capers put together an event to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Bobby Jones' first visit in 1916. So this was four years back, five years back. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there were probably 16 or 20 members of the the, uh, Hickory Society that showed up. And the first day we played, we were asked to bring an extra set of clubs. And we were joined by members of the Marion golf club on the West course. And we played a better ball event there. And then the following day we played the East course. And um, so we were the first foursome and I was the first player of the first foursome. Oh no. Yeah. And you stand with your rear end, literally yeah. on the <laughs> dining table right. of the people. And, and as you go to take your practice swing, you hear all the forks go down and the, the hush. And you know, they're all watching you, especially when you're in plus fours in a short time. And I piped it down the fairway as if it was just a normal round of golf. And uh, uh, Mike Policano said, you think that's nerve wracking, try being (laughs) left-handed.
0: Yeah, because you can he see everybody. Was,
1: I'm staring at some woman <laughs> while she wiped the corner of her mouth.
0: So, okay, exactly. So that's a pretty neat opening hole. So Tim, you're now splitting your time between New Jersey and what? South Carolina.
1: South Carolina, Hilton. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, you have some of the best options in front of you for golf, 24/7. It sounds like
1: the I would say that the metropolitan. New York area has the most storied and abundant number of courses. I've had a chance to play uh, Yeaman's Hall Mm -hmm. while I was down in uh, South Carolina, and um, that's an absolute treat. I mean, Seth Rayner is probably, he's in the pantheon. He he is, you know, his style, his his creativity, and uh, I've played maybe a eight or nine Seth Raynor courses and Mike Policano and I put together a list of, I think 73 courses from Marion to myopia hunt mm-hmm. that were built during the pre-depression uh, years that we wanted to play with our uh, hickories. Mm-hmm. And I think I probably have 34 of them out of the way. Wow! So um, in fact, within a six month period, I was able to play Marion Pine Valley, Plainfield, Baltus Somerset Hills, all with hickories. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's that's, I mean, when you, and, and then, and basically when you play those old courses that were built for hickories and you yeah. play them with hickories, you gain this incredible understanding of where, why the bunkers are where they are,
0: yeah.
1: why the courses play as difficult as, and, and you marvel at the, that Harry Varden in 1920 you know, came over and set course record after course record. And uh,
0: Did you have any uh, force carries at Pine Valley that you recall? There's the one famous hole that's got that force carry over the giant waste area.
1: Well, the seventh hole has Hell's Half Acre. Yeah. And so you hit a normal tee shot, but then you have, to carry that that bunker. And if you hit a fair enough tee shot, you can carry that bunker without a problem. But if you hit a poor tee shot then you have to lay up and lay up mm. as close to that, and you still can't reach the green mm. in, from the one side of the bunker, because it's incredibly shallow. Uh, but the fifth hole of that course is a 220 some yard uh, uphill par three over a pond, to a green that just disappears on all four sides. <laughs> and uh, it's incredibly visually intimidating, the whole course is. But then uh, you go into the clubhouse and you see the course records from 1916, Jay Wood Platt, 74, 72. Wow. And you just, and you know he was playing hickories. <laughs> and uh, the course was probably in less, uh, running condition than it is today.
0: So. I think what I've heard is there are bunkers that are now in the forest because the trees have encroached so much and there were so many bunkers on that course back then.
1: There, there's an incredible amount of sand, but they have, in the last four years, they've closed it down in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And they've taken out mm-hmm. thousands of trees. Yeah, good. So now you get a lot more um, vistas Yeah, from the top of the second hole uh, from the bottom of the fourth hole, um, the back nine, the 12th hole, the whole left side has been opened up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you get some really great views now that were encroached. And and if you, when you go into the clubhouse and you look at some of the original photos, it was pretty barren, right? There were, you know, five dozen trees on the whole golf. Course.
0: <laughs> now you touched on it briefly, uh, golf club restoration. You've been doing this for a long time. How, how do you build your clientele and is there, um, is there a standard request that you get from most people?
1: Again, just like my carpentry, it's word of mouth. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I get people who are referred by other people. I'm mentioned on the society's website, I believe. And then a lot of the people from the Metropolitan Hickory Society turn mm-hmm. to me. Right. I, broke this, I broke this shaft, the head's loose. I need a new grip, that kind of thing, basically. And, and, and you get people who buy a new club and they're, they're clueless as to what to do. So right. you had a phone call, can you refurbish this? And you tell them it'll be 70 bucks. And they, they, they're like, well, I only paid $45. For it. <laughs> and then you and they go, well, what do you do? And you say, well, I pull the head, polish the head, um, clean out the hosel, clean the shaft, strip the shaft, stain the shaft, polyurethane, put a new grip on, re-whip it and put whipping at the base. And but you get halfway through that description and they go, we're good, we're yeah, good.
0: Exactly. And didn't do it, so. Um, do you have a favorite finish that you like <clears> to use on either shafts or heads?
1: Um, I use a, a Minwax poly Polyshade. It's mm-hmm. a acrylic, the matte finish. Yeah. And it seems to be, you know, I use three coats, basically, on almost everything, shafts and heads. Do you uh, uh,
0: sand the finish between coats?
1: I or just let it dry. I, I have a um, a scrunch pad, like a 3M scrunch pad.
0: Right, that's what I use.
1: How to take the bubbles off. Right, uh, and I don't sand it between the second and third. Mm-hmm. So um, generally, it's you, you get those bubbles after the first coat because the pores of the wood are open.
0: Yeah, there's a gentleman out here that introduced me to asphaltum. Have you used that ever? I've heard of it. It and gets a beautiful color to a hickory shaft. It's a very thick and very dark. I would liken it to a Bombay stain that you can get at your at your hardware store. Okay. But it leaves a really beautiful tone on the wood shafts. I think. And does it have tar in it? I don't Is know it? what's in it. I I'm not knowledgeable enough to know it. I have a small jar of it, and it'll probably outlast me. Okay. Okay. Um,
1: because when I do, when I put new hickory shafts in clubs, yeah, oftentimes if you stain them, um, the stain doesn't penetrate as deeply as you'd like it to. Right. And I usually do them two times. But I thought the asphaltum filled those little oh maybe it does grooves and, and blackened them and then the stain. Uh uh-huh. I
0: was using a Bombay Minwax product. Maybe it was very very dark. It, when you put it on, it looks black. But of course, with any stain, you know, once you wipe it, it lightens down quite a bit. Yeah. Anyway, Yeah. I definitely want to get to your book. Let's talk about Claret Dreams. The title of the book, Claret Dreams, Historic Hickories in the Modern British Open. The book was released in 2010. Uh, I just reread it the other day. I read it in one sitting. Uh, I still can't believe you wrote that book before you played hickory golf. Yes, I did. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, tell, tell listeners about the book and how they can find it.
1: Well, the book came about through discussion after the end of one round as to who the greatest golfer of all time was. And two of the gentlemen claimed it was Tiger Woods. And I said, well, when your history of golf doesn't proceed 1993, it's easy to make, see why you came up with right. that decision." Right. And I said, and, and while you can't compare golfers from generation to generation, I, I would put Harry Barden high on my list. And they said, who's Harry Barden? And, and and explained why they said Tiger Woods and and I explained that he had captured six British Opens came to the United States and played in only three U.S. Opens won one tied for first in the second one losing in a playoff and had a seven stroke lead with six holes to go in the third one before a storm blew in off the ocean off the Lake Erie and allowed Ted Ray to win and uh all while fighting uh, tuberculosis, right. And a caste system that had him as a, uh, a low life, in essence, because he was trying to make a living playing
0: golf. He's and also from Jersey. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> A
1: different Jersey, but the same. <laughs> yeah. And so I wanted to write a book, but I didn't want to do time travel. I didn't want to have somebody get hit in the head with a golf ball and wake up in the you know, 1920s with steel club or have it mm-hmm. the other way around. And so I decided to bring the clubs and have them travel forward in time. And it's kind of like a Forrest Gump approach where if you read the book, everything but the golf clubs and the family are real. Right. Um, and so I, it took maybe six or seven weeks to write the book mm-hmm. but then it took about four or five months to research the dates and to make people be born and die in certain periods so that things coordinate with those events. And, uh, and while at the end of the book, um, you know the ending. I do. But um, I didn't want to really disturb actual events that happened in history. But uh, And then the sequel to it is, if you get to the end of the first book, um, you'll say, oh, I know where this is going. And you'll be wrong. So right. <laughs> even the sequel takes a twist at the end, so. And if I'm I can about, make a, sorry, go ahead. I'm 45,000 words into the sequel. Hmm. And um, I probably have a few more years chronologically to make to the end, but just finding the time to sit down and write that is, is, is uh, dogging me right now.
0: And I know you self-published Claret Dreams. Yes. Uh, and I read it originally as an ebook. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm happy to say I repaid for it a week ago because it was so long ago that I read it. It's, I, I don't have it on my account anymore. Okay. But uh, can, where can I, people- thank you for <laughs> that. Yeah, I'm happy to do 11 that. 11 cents of royalties is <laughs> are <laughs> I mean, to retire. Where, where can people find the book?
1: Uh, it's available on Amazon. And I believe it's available on Walmart Books or Books A Million or, but if you get on Amazon, it's available
0: and, and uh, can one get a printed copy of it
1: you can get hardcover paperback wow and- okay and in fact the price has not changed since its inception which mm-hmm. is like you get on sometimes now and you look at a book any of the golf books and you say oh available for one cent or available you know to right. <laughs> 99 cents so um what having- do you
0: hear from the readers of the book <laughs>
1: There have been probably a dozen or so posted reviews on that Amazon site,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they, like you said, I sat down and I couldn't put the book away. Right, uh, it was a quick read, and and I write the way I like to read. Like I don't want to see here Mary in her crimson dress walk down to the to the babbling brook under a powder blue sky. Blah blah blah. I just want to say Mary went out. You know that. Kind right. Of- so right. uh, in fact, Lionel Friedman had a gentleman review the book when it first came out and he had it in his magazine. And so it got published. I look at the review, and my daughter's sitting over my shoulder and I'm reading it. And he said, it's a miserable day, it's raining and I can't play golf. So I'm relegated to reading this book with dodgy grammar. And it's a <laughs> dodgy grammar and syntax errors and about some drunken man recollecting a golf thing and my daughter's rubbing my shoulders Gone. it's okay dad it's okay and then he said and an interesting thing happened I'm more than two-thirds through the book and I haven't put it down
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I realized that it's transformed transferred me from this miserable existence outside to another time and place right and it's made me feel good and isn't that um, the thrust of a good book yeah so at the end he finally it was and, and lionel said it starts out he goes read the whole thing just don't read the
0: beginning right sure yeah that's a setup uh i have to confess when i reread the book i did fact check you on where tom young tommy was born i didn't realize tommy was born not in prestwick but in fact of in course your, your book was imm- immaculate
1: yeah, I mean, I I probably read more books to write that book yeah. than I did all through college. Um, so it it was it was one of and now the sequel required a bit of research as well. So, but uh, it's it's factually accurate. There's players in the book that you say, oh, I know that person, so, right? And I've never heard of this Ian McCorran guy. So
0: now, uh, so at your home, do you have? collectibles of all types or do you stick mainly to golf clubs
1: i really i i have some golf collectibles but it's not the thrust of of Mm -hmm. my existence i mean i have i have a number of my divot tools signed by golf professionals i have a putter from the very first solheim cup that was given to the players i have a golf ball signed by arnie and winnie which is pretty cool um I have some signed photographs of Seve. And um, from, there was a golf, an English golf writer who was married to a a coworker of my wife's and he passed away and she had me come up Mm -hmm. to the house and and go over some of the items that he had. And I guess between the time he died and the time I showed up, the USGA museum came in and Mm -hmm. pilfered his collection. But she had She said the only thing she really kept was a ball and a glove signed by Nick Faldo from the master's tournament that he ended up winning against Greg Norman. And I read the book Driven by Nick Faldo. And he talks about finishing the third round and walking into the locker room and having some British sports writer come up to him and ask him a question. And he just tore the guy a new ass and it stirred his, his juices up and he went out the next day and won. And he went up to the guy and he said, and "I gave him an autographed golf ball and glove to try and make amends." So I took the, the book and <laughs> put it on the page and gave it to her as a piece of provenance right. to back up the glove and the ball that she had. So, yeah. But I basically, I mean, I have some old books, some um, some books that you bought years ago, and then you go try and look for another one, like the Evangelist of Golf. It's not available anymore. Um, some George Thomas books, things like that.
0: Yeah, I, I was trying to get my hands on a George Thomas book a year ago. It was 400 and some dollars on eBay. Or well, I was in New
1: York City and I wanted to get a cop original copy of Links by Robert Hunter. Uh-huh. I went into this antique bookshop on Madison Avenue and I said, I'm trying to look for this book. He goes, we don't have it here, but let me look it up. And he said, oh, I can get it for you. It's $4,800. Yeah. And I said, well, I think I'll pass on that
0: one. yeah. <laughs> So uh, when I was reading your book the other day, I kept thinking of it in visuals. Has anybody ever talked to you about turning it into a film at all?
1: There's a gentleman whose um, daughters, my daughters went to to school with. And um, I didn't know of him at the time, but uh, my college roommate, when I went down to visit my daughter at Georgetown, he said, I have a friend of mine who wants, who uh, I want to give him a copy of your book. So I brought down two copies and about a month later i get a phone call from my buddy and he said hey my friend wants to reach out to you can i give him your email address and i said yeah sure so i get this email and said i read your book i got all choked up i nearly cried on the train and um is there a is there a sequel is there a movie in the in the work signed by the president of simon and schuster and so we ended up going and playing baltus Rall together and uh, he said his brother had put on, um, had worked on the play Lombardi on Broadway. And he said he was like the non-publishing guy in the family. Mm-hmm. He said, um, would you be opposed to him looking into the possibility of making it into a movie? I said, you've got first dibs. So um, that's as far as it went. But uh, I've always pictured Sean Connery playing the part of, of Trevor.
0: hmm
1: um, the old caddy. Right. Um, unfortunately, he's finished his back nine, so uh, right. that's not going to happen. Right. Um, but it would be cool. I think if you took the first book and the second book, you could put them together and it would make a good movie. Yeah. But my, my daughters always say, oh, you need a romance. You need some love interest. You need some kind of, uh, please.
0: Yeah, to me, when I'm sure people saw Tommy's Honor, I thought all that got in the way.
1: Yeah, I did too. Yeah, I, I mean, the fact that his wife lost the child and,
0: and, and that, in,
1: in essence, was the belief that everybody that he died of a broken heart, but um, it had to be some part of the movie, but I think it was too much of the movie. Yeah. So, uh, but it, it was a good movie.
0: So uh, what's next? Do you have anything that you're um, anticipating coming out of COVID or other projects you're stewing in your head?
1: I'm always thinking of different diva tools. I'm always thinking of ways to improve trestle sticks or I have this collapsible bag stand that I've designed and um, it's popular, but uh, y- you just keep thinking
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, enjoying the round of golf and, and making new friends and uh, getting the opportunity to get out on this side of the grass. Yeah. You hickory players are no more than civil war reenactors. Right. But we use real ammunition. Maybe right. they that as well.
0: <laughs> I like it.
1: <laughs> so, um, And it's just, it's fun to go out and do it. I, I got my son-in-law involved in it and he's just smitten. He got his first hole in one plane with hickory. Wow. wow. Um,
0: and out here, we call that the dodo club. The dodo? Yeah, if you make a hole-in-one with hickories, we started a thing called the Dodo Club.
1: There's two members of our hickory society, one's from Pottsville, PA, mm-hmm. one's from Stroudsburg. So I got a set of uh, Tom Stewart irons from a guy in Canada, restored them and gave them to this guy in Stroudsburg. He calls me up the next day and says, Tim, after 42 years of golf, I got my first hole-in-one with a hickory. amazing, wow. So then I, I got a set together for the guy in Pottsville we went out to St. George's on Long Island, and we played a two-day tournament. the first day I had him play with me and introduce him to Rich Schmidt and some of the people out there. Second day he played by himself. He's in the group behind us. We walk off the, the green and up the hill to the par four, and I hear,
0: ah!
1: And I thought somebody twisted their ankle. He got a hole in one too. Oh my God. <laughs> and then I gave uh, I made a bulger from Mike Policano, a left-handed bulger we went up to ridgewood and there was a temporary green on a par 3 and he just took it out and bunted the ball and went right in the cup. Said, no, I don't like this. So I I provided the the joy of a hole in 1 to three people through the Hickory World.
0: Well, we really appreciate you being with us Tim and Would I look you? forward to seeing you again soon.
1: Me too.